welcome back to Detroit Strange. I have the great pleasure of introducing a journalist supreme as our guest today. She's worked for the Kalamazoo Gazette, the Daily Telegram of Adrian, the Oakland Press, the Detroit News, and Court Magazine. In addition to this, she has done pieces for Time Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and The Hollywood Reporter. And on top of it all, she has authored four Michigan history books, including The Ford Wyoming Drive-In, Better Made Michigan, which is a callback to episode 19, Secret Detroit, which I know Jess owns, and The Witch of Del Rey, mm-hmm. which is a callback to our very first episode. So with a big warm welcome, we have Karen Divis Divis Karen D. Hey. <laughs> You actually have it right both ways, so that's why I really? love that I'm Karen D. I feel like I've got my own moniker on the show, so I feel even more uh, excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for having me. And you guys nope. rocked both books, by the way. Oh, thank you. I stumbled oh. on the witch episode and was like, oh, no, this could go so wrong. And then I listened <laughs> to it, and I was like, I think you guys did a better job summarizing the book than I did. Like oh. it was 100% more entertaining and cut out all the boring bits. And so I applaud you. Oh, well, that's it was so great sweet. material I mean, to work with. It was actually like our start episode from the beginning. Yeah. We, we had like, a, a small response. list and we were like, we need to start with a bang. Let's go yeah, with the yeah, Witch of yeah. Wishcraft. Wishcraft is the yeah. way, man. Always. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually you already beat us to our first question because we were going to ask you, how do you pronounce your name? Uh, but I do have a small clip from our first episode of Alex stumbling over it that I want to share because it's just fun. <laughs> Classic throwback. Until recently, I fit the stories kind of just scattered about throughout the archives until Karen Dibus, 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 she has a lot. Karen D. Yeah. Karen D. And the origin. Yes. <laughs> the origin. That's when I like ran downstairs to my family after I heard it or something like that. I was like, I was on a podcast. <laughs> and they nailed it. Like, again, you, you never want to hear yourself even referenced on anything related to, like, I, uh, someone recorded an episode that mentioned me. I don't want to uh-huh. I don't want to be famous in that way. Like, I'm no Kim yeah. K. I want to just be Karen D and just live in, in anonymity. But it was so yes. thrilling. because. And then when you did the potato chip book, as I call it, like the uh-huh. Better Made in Michigan, it was even more fun because I'm like, oh, my God, they did it right. Everything was not only accurate. But it was more fun to listen to than the whole process of putting the book together. So I'm just going to have you guys do my summaries from now on. If I ever write <laughs> anything else, I'm just coming to you and you can just oral history it and it'll be so much more entertaining. I love that so much. I have to say, too, Alex mentioned I own Secret Detroit and that actually helped us like in compiling our list of like things that we're interested in looking further into. I love that book just because it's like the small little snippets yeah. of things around Detroit that are just interesting and unique and weird. And it's so fabulous. And who knew, like (laughs) who knew you'd be here on our hundredth episode. That was the brilliant part of putting that together was I had to make a list and I made like 150 things that are weird in Detroit. And I could have included all of them. Like there's something great about this city that just inspires oddity and, and like peculiarity but oh, yeah. I had to narrow it down. And my only regret is I included things that were not weird. Like I threw in a few touristy things uh-huh. and actually got nailed by people on Amazon and bad reviews for that. They're like, there's nothing interesting about the fist of Detroit. And I'm like, well, there's stuff I didn't know about it. So I was thrilled to do the research. But yeah, anytime a deep something. dive. Oh, 
mean. People are just mean as snakes oh, on yeah. on reviews, man. Mm-hmm. If the book comes bent, they give you a one star. So it's like, yeah, it's Amazon's fault, not mine. <laughs> right. But, You're like, yeah. I did not bend that book myself. No, I wouldn't have ever bent a page. I'm like a librarian. I don't touch anything. <laughs> I'm very much a bookmark person myself. Yes, so, my I- friend. Just like occasionally, <laughs> if I'm like really desperate, I'll dog ear page, but yes. very rarely. Usually, like I've used everything, anything as bookmark and books. So just like <laughs> anything to avoid bending the page. That's it. It's got to be Snow White and pristine, man. If I'm gonna mess it up, I buy a second copy. Yeah. I gotta say, I'm a page bender. Uh, I am a mess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. I do use bookmarks sometimes. And they're never okay. There you go. They are always a random piece of paper. But the one I'm using right now is a piece of cardboard from a dress shirt (laughs) collar. That's the best. (laughs) Yeah, it's all flimsy, flopping around. That's the best. I was just say. So I guess, like, how did you get started in writing, and especially in the Michigan, like historic? Yeah, that was kind of just stumbled into it. I got really lucky. When I started freelancing, I would take pretty much any assignment someone threw my way. And the Detroit News were doing pieces on back like 10 years ago, the, I think it was Toyota, was giving money to drive-in theaters, trying to help them convert from the big film, you know, the giant film canisters to to digital. And it's super Uh expensive. It's like 70 grand per theater. So they were- Oh, wow. All across the nation, they helped theaters do it. And they did the Cherry Bowl in Traverse City area, like by Sleeping uh-huh. Bear Dunes. This is great old drive-in. So I wrote a story about the program and the History Press, who published uh, the Better Maid, the Witch, and uh, the Ford Wyoming, were looking for people to write drive-in books. They had this grand vision, right? They're going to have uh-huh. people write books about their local drive-ins. And it's going to be this whole series and they're going to promote it across the country. And it'll be this amazing thing. Two people, two people in the entire United States actually finished the books. And I'm one of the two. So the Ford Wyoming book was the first thing I wrote because they came to me and they're like, we're not going to pay you anything. You might get a couple, you know, dollars in royalties when it's all said and done, but we're going to publish this and it's going to look like a real book. It's going to be like the, the epitome of your dream. Cause I think everybody who gets into reporting wants to write a book someday. So I did it and it was crazy. Cause I found the original owner uh-huh. and he was still alive at the time. He was like 90 or something like that. And then the guy that bought it from the original owner, his family, like, so I was able to piece together the story of how this drive-in came to be. And it's the weirdest idea for a book, like how a building was built and like how people use that building you wouldn't think it'd be that entertaining but drive-ins are cool so that got me started yeah and once the ford wyoming book was done i wanted to do the story about better made because nobody knows anything about them they're super private they're sicilian they trust no one and so i had to (laughs) bug them for about six months before they let me do the book and then it was off to the races like you get addicted it's super fun uh just doing these deep dives kind of like not a podcast because it's, it's you guys have the vocal talent and the entertainment aspect, but the, it's the same idea where you just research it and then you get to riff off of it for, you know, 80 pages or whatever. So I've been doing it ever since. Awesome. Oh, I love yeah, that I, so much. 
Yeah, it like there is just something about deep diving into something very yeah. specific that's just you know, you just keep going. You're like, what else can I find? What else can I find? Oh, yeah. I still do the stuff on the potato chip stuff. I'll have people, if they see me at an event or a librarian, will save stuff for me. So mm-hmm. I've had people sing jingles to me of uh-huh. old potato chip companies. And if they find an old tin, they give it to me. So I have like a whole potato chip tin collection and stuff like that. Oh, nice. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's the best thing. And I never get sick of it. That's the weirdest part. They have this great show on the History Channel called The Food That Made America or something like that. Uh And they've done episodes on Herman Lay Uh and Charles Dolan, who invented Fritos. And I'm like watching it, like the most exciting episode of any TV show I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, what's going to happen next? Um, So it, it stays with you. You get completely immersed in the stories. And Detroit is endless, like I say, with weirdos mm-hmm. and strange tales and interesting characters. So I keep looking for more stuff to do. Oh, for sure. There's just, there's so much in the city. Is there any deep dive right now that you are just dying to go into? Yeah, I've got a bunch of them I'm working on, but nothing's come to fruition. But there's a couple great stories that if, if you guys are interested, there's one that I would love to have someone do because it's better for a podcast than a book. Because there's this famous case of a husband and wife. Well, were they husband and wife? That could be part of the mystery that you tell. Uh Where they stole documents from the library, the Detroit Public Library. They would sneak in. He'd pretend to be a professor and ask to look at all this documentation of like any kind of famous letters between presidents. They did that. They stole a lot of presidential letters at other libraries. In Detroit, I'll have to look up what they stole. But they would come in under the premise that he was a professor, ask for all these documents to be brought out of the archives, sneak them into her handbag, and then they'd leave the library because no one would ever search her handbag and go sell all these papers across the nation to rare book dealers and people who are experts on like uh, famous letters and would sell them to collectors. They did this across the country. And they got arrested oh in Detroit. And oh, so wow. they're this, I call them the paper thieves. I'll send you all the information I have on it. And you could like do a deep dive on them because the, the stuff I would need for a book doesn't exist. The FBI has destroyed all the paperwork because it's just, old. Oh, nobody cares. Yeah. That's yeah. what they tell me. I've researched it for about a year and I've not been able to track down any more on them, but their story goes in 10 different directions from there. They had aliases, They had eight kids. The kids kind of got sent out for adoption after they got arrested here in Detroit. And it's just, it's a crazy tale. So it has wonderful Detroit roots. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, So you'll you'll find stuff like that. And you're like, God, it happened in the 1960s. So they're like this crazy, weird looking couple. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Lee Israel before Lee Israel was Lee Israel, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you hear about these famous you know, art robberies in other countries or in Boston. Mm-hmm. There's this Netflix special on one of the big uh, art scams of the day. And it's like, well, we had them, too. Come on, you guys. Yeah. Detroit has its tales. You can de- dive into that one. Yeah, no love for Detroit. We got to get we like lure them in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I-, I think all roads end here with uh, strange tales of great court cases and weirdos like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much too, because um, it's interesting 
how much pieces of paper can be worth to me. Like just in general, like you're talking about, they're selling off these documents and stuff like that. And like pieces of paper can be worth like millions of dollars sometimes if they're the right piece of paper. Oh, yeah. That's how they were supporting themselves. Like when they I'll have to look up the articles, but then they arrested them. He had like a letter from President Lincoln in his wallet. Like that's how little they thought of the stuff. It was literally their job going from city to city, just stealing stuff from archives. And if not for, you know, the FBI being called in to the Detroit Public Library case, they would have kept doing it. And they, they tracked him down here and they had like two big steamer trunks full of documents oh, from presidents wow. and heads <laughs> of state and just craziness. It was just a great weird tale that, again, could only happen here, it felt like. Oh, um, yeah. The professor yeah. who wrote about it just passed away, but I have a couple of recordings I did with him. So I'll have to oh, see if great. there's anything good. You guys could have some good audio. Yeah, that would be oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like an amazing story. Yeah, they're fun. So speaking of other Detroit things, do you have any um, kind of favorite things or hidden gems in the city? Like you're kind of your like your go to's in the city. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. These are places that like someone comes into town, I have to take them there or I'll go on like a mini driving tour. Uh So I love the like the, the artwork around the um, graffiti artists, so to speak, in Eastern Market. There's one of my favorite guys there is Jim Batchelor, I think his name is pronounced. He's out of Chicago, but he is a tile artist in the oh, style wow. of the Roman tile. So very old, classic way. But when he came in for murals in the market, he did 10 pothole tile installations. Oh, wow. And he had done one on Better Made. That was over by the um, Charles H. Wright Museum. Uh-huh. Only mm-hmm. when the city improved the street, they actually paved over it. So <gasps> oh, no. he came back in town per an invitation and did 10 of these crazy potholes in Eastern Market. So that's one of my favorites. You got to find all the 10 of the potholes if they're still there. There's one mm-hmm. of like, I think there's a Coney dog. There's a peach there's an, uh, another cup, like three or four different food ones. And then he did a portrait of Aretha Franklin because she had just passed away when he was in town. So that's one of my favorite weird things. And I love over there by um, Floyd, the home store, there's a car that someone had driven cross country. And when they got it to Detroit, it's an old, like, I think it's an El Dorado or something like that. Like one of those car truck combos that they used to yeah. do in the 60s. It broke down in Detroit, and so he literally had it installed as a piece of art in the city, and it's called the Vertical – oh, it's it's El Camino or something like that. Okay. The Vertical El Camino or something. So it's this car that's a bolt upright, and it's been just installed there off of Alfred right by Eastern Market. And So if mm-hmm. you can find Floyd where they sell the, the furniture, it's right across yeah. the street from them off of Alfred. So those are some of my favorites. Um, that just like, you have to see this stuff to believe it. And you can take people on kind of like weird, um, tours yeah. of the city and see some of this stuff. Um, I always tell people use MapQuest, like it create a circle drive for you from start to finish. And you can hit all these different spots. Um, a lot of people that I've done tours with, they'll, they'll have like teachers groups that do it in the summer just cause they're bored together. Cause they're not at yeah. work. They'll, they'll mm-hmm. go see all the sites and hit some of these spots and 
I have that long list of uh, the places I was going to do for Secret Detroit that I'll send out to people. It's like a Google Doc and just like hit all of them. See what you can find around the city because they're constantly being added too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you guys like have a little found scavenger. Stuff. Yeah, it's like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. You guys found a few that I hadn't heard of too that you've done podcasts on that I thought was really fun. Like I think it was a, the um, Vietnam monument or some sort of soldier's monument. Oh, yeah. The war memorial. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of that one. I found that only on a tour. Like I took one of those bus tours where we went around to different spots and yeah, it was very neat. Uh, (laughs) I'm glad that we were able to share stuff with you because you shared so much information with us. Yeah, That was excellent. That's why I love the podcast because it's like, I don't know any of this. And it's lovely to see all the different kind of sourcing you do too. Cause I'm like, Oh, I never thought about looking up there, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's fun. We definitely uh, have some interest. We, I feel like sometimes like we found a book, we found the scribbling in the bathroom somewhere, yeah. like yeah. kind of just whatever we can find and get our hands on. Absolutely. Yeah. Which actually uh, kind of leads me to ask. So you were the one who inspired us to do the Dodge Brothers, which uh, I had so much fun with. Again, I went I went down a research hole. I could not stop because I would find one thing and then I'd find another thing. And I just I could not stop myself. How did you stumble upon their whole thing other than them existing? Oh, because I think it was when I was touring the Paquette, maybe, Mm because they have a couple of their cars there. And then you see the pictures of the Dodge Brothers and you're like, oh, these guys look like they are just hot messes. Like, what's the story behind them? (laughs) And then a friend of mine sent me a a story idea. The same guy, his name's Paul, was the one that found the Witch of Del Rey. And he had sent me a note and he goes, you know what you should do is the Dodge Widows. Because they were billionaires in their era, like mm-hmm. not literal with a B, but more like multimillionaires. Yeah. And he said that would mm-hmm. be a great story. So I started researching them and realized that they were fascinating. Like Henry Ford mm-hmm. gets all the ink. Edsel gets a little bit and he deserves it. Like I totally dig Edsel Ford too. But the Dodge brothers are not only brilliant, but they were really big personalities. They had these incredible mansions. And then when they died, you know, within what months of each other, if I remember right, mm-hmm. the widows yeah. inherited like this incredible amount of money, like 130 million or something like that. And so that just <laughs> stuck with me. Yeah. And the idea that they helped build the automotive industry, but because they die young, don't get any credit. It always sticks mm-hmm. in my craw. I want all these great historical characters to be remembered Oh, and there is sure. like a little memorial to them in Hamtramck, but there's no, you know, the Henry Ford estate. Mm-hmm, I guess there's right. Meadowbrook. I, I shouldn't say that. Meadowbrook does exist as a tribute to Matilda uh, Dodge, mm-hmm. but they are were just so entertaining. And again, the idea that their tale took many twists and they, you know, mm-hmm. went in different directions with what kind of things they were into, like the boating, the homes that they had tried to build or the kind of way they constructed their lives just felt like a great topic for the kind of podcast you guys like to do. And it was a great story. That was, that was one of my favorite episodes that you've done just because it was just so wild, you know, (laughs) kept kept going. I know. And especially with like the issue or isn't she dodge at the end. Yes. When I stumbled on the, the pilot episode of unsolved mysteries, which how does that even happen? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for that suggestion, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
there's just little, um, I always call them like fiefdoms or silos of history that Uh Mm -hmm. different people who are local historians will lay claim to. And there's great books about the Dodge brothers. So I can't do better than what's already out there. So it drives me crazy. Like I wish I could stumble on things that are weirder than, than truth. Truth's always stranger than fiction, the old phrase. And the witch is the only Mm -hmm. one that I found that no one else had already laid claim to, but I'm always hoping to find that next great story. So that's why I enjoy what you guys are up to every week. Awesome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so we sometimes talk about the ookies and the spookies on this show. Do you have any feelings on the paranormal? Are you a believer? Are you kind of hesitant? Oh, no, no. I am totally a believer. Totally a believer. Because I will tell you my witch story. And I don't know of any like good haunted anythings. But the thing that when I started thinking about writing about the Witch of Del Rey, her name's Rose Verez, as I pronounce mm-hmm. it, V-E-R-E-S. Um, yeah. I decided, okay, I got to go find her. I'm going to go to the cemetery where she's buried because she's a real person. This is not yeah. just mm-hmm. me making yeah. up a character. I should go and visit her. So I drive out to the cemetery and Woodmere near Del Rey is humongous. Yeah. I'm going to get the number mm-hmm. wrong off the top of my head, but it's like 130,000 people are buried there or something like that. Oh, wow. So I got lost and I had to go to the cemetery office and it's like pouring rain. So of I go course. in there and they they tell me where to go and I, I get to the right section finally and I get out and I find her tombstone. It's it's flat and it's like pink, which is so cute. Like, I don't know why Uh-oh. it's pink other than her sons picked it out for her and thought, you know, mom would like that. And I said, hello, because I believe, you know, the spirit is probably still around. Yeah. And the rain stopped. Mm-hmm. And I started talking to her about how I was going to write this book. And I was going to try to set the record straight about her because there had been so many like tours that included her and mm-hmm. so much misinformation about her on the Internet. Like some people claim she was a werewolf. Some people had claimed that she had <laughs> um, eaten the men that she had killed like cooked them and ate them. And I'm like, that's cannibalism. Like, there's no way. Come on, guys. So there was all these weird rumors that I hope to put to rest about her. So that's what I was telling her. And I kid you not that the sun parted, like the clouds parted from the rain. The sun came out. And for about 10 minutes, it stopped raining. And I finished talking to her and and, you know said a little prayer because I'm a nice Catholic girl or whatever. And Mm -hmm. got back in my car and the rain started again. And it was like, oh, if I don't write this book now, she's going to haunt me and I'm going to be cursed. <laughs> I have to, you know, do right by yeah. this woman. Yeah. So years, like a year passes or whatever, and the book comes out. And a friend of mine is one of those bus tour guides. And she's like, well, I, I, I'm going to talk about the witch. Tell me the whole story. And we ate lunch and I was telling her about it. And she got on the tour that night and she was ready to tell the so-called true story, she said. But it was kind of boring and she admitted it. She was like, I don't want to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the the werewolf or, you know, one of the other versions. And she said, Mm -hmm. as she was telling the story, the bus went by a tree and a branch scraped across the bus windows in this like screechy, awful, like chills down your (laughs) spine way. And she's like, fine, Rose, fine. I will tell the story how it's supposed to be told. And she said that the bus had not even ever made a noise like that before. And they'd gone by that tree before. So she is convinced that the spirit of Rose like kind of like dashes around making sure that now that the truth is out there about her, that she was, you know, deemed innocent of these 
murder she was accused of and someone you know tried to set the record straight that she she wanted it kept that way and would haunt anybody that did otherwise and i just i delight in that idea that any of these people that lived in detroit in that time period but just in general that like if you don't tell this the, the story correctly that there's going to be some sort of like revenge on your spirit just again delights me to no end and I, I every time that. I'm in that area, I go by and see Rose now. I always tell people, like, she's there waiting. You can go by and, and offer your two cents to her. And, you know, if you believe in witches, she's probably a great representation of them, too. She did, To my knowledge, she didn't actually do witchcraft. But, you know, mm. there there is a witchcraft store in Detroit now. So why not, you know, go buy candle from there and go hang out and uh, maybe say a little uh, prayer for good weather. I don't know. But I think yeah. Rose would be all for it. <laughs> that sounds yeah, perfect. That's amazing. Well, that might have to be a field trip, Jess. Go yes. see Rose. I would love to go see Rose. Yeah. Detroit has it. great cemeteries. It would totally be worth oh, it. Her really, husband's yeah. buried right next to her because you get a two for one. Nice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about Woodmere quite a few times. Yeah. And I've never been there. So I think it needs to happen. Oh, oh for yeah. Sure. It's glorious. Yeah. Um, I was going to say. Um, total brain fart but i think that brings us to the end of our mm-hmm. our questions except for we have one last one for you do you want to hear a story i do please tell me a story this is like the reading rainbow only better yes yay fantastic um so there's a little history behind why we're telling this story on this episode too for ourselves yeah and we are going to be talking about the masonic temple best because we actually did a deep dive tour. They do a couple tours there, but one of them's like like four times a year or something. It's like less often. And that was kind of our precursor to doing the podcast. We had decided on doing it and we were like, we need to do research. Let's go on this deep dive tour. And then we just didn't know what to do with it because there's so much information. (laughs) And just like, yeah, like the the format of our show too, where we kind of like surprise each other with a topic. Mm -hmm. We did the tour together, so there's no surprise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you want to so talk about some to... stuff we just talked about? Yeah, let's talk about it some more. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We needed to surprise somebody. And then we uh-huh. found you. <laughs> perfect. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to be starting our little journey. And this is some dense information. So I'm going to put that out there. Uh, it does jump around a little bit, but I'm going to be kind of giving a history of the, the Freemasons in general. So we know who is building this large structure. Uh, so the Freemason motto is better men make a better world, which better men is great. Um, I think better people make a better world. <laughs> That's just me. Uh, so according to Masonic Lodge of Education.com, there are about 6 million Freemasons worldwide. Oh, wow. And yeah, at its height in this city, there are about 55,000. Wow. But as of 2006, there are about 3,300. So it's it's on a downward trend right now. I'm pretty sure that is consistent worldwide as well. And it's possible that it first took root in Detroit following Pontiac's War in 1764. Basically, a bunch of military officers found a lot more free time, and they started to form a Masonic Lodge, which I always thought lodge meant a place, but it actually just means like this specific like gathering of people. So like a lodge is like the club. A club. Basically. Yeah, basically. And it was called Zion Lodge Number no. 10. 
And they were using a charter from the Grand Lodge in New York because the structure of the Freemasons is kind of interesting in the fact that you can have a Grand Lodge and kind of have like charter some smaller ones within it. But there's no ultimate Grand Lodge. Like there's no worldwide. This is like the leader of all lodges. There's no Masonic Pope. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But an anti-Masonic wave did hit in the 1820s, and that would have them hiding out until about the 1840s or so. And then they started to kind of come back into prevalence around the area. So the Freemasons is the oldest fraternal organization, still kicking it today. And starting in started in Europe and the Middle Ages, er, in and the Middle Ages in Europe in the Middle Ages, which we learned a few episodes ago. There were some very questionable rules and practices during. You'll hear that episode yeah. soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it th- was basically started as a collective of skilled builders and stonemasons, which makes sense, building a lot of cathedrals and things like that. From the end of the 14th century, the Freemasons monitored qualifications to join, as well as member interactions with authorities and clients. So kind of almost like a UAW of Masons. And when cathedral construction declined, their focus kind of shifted and changed a little bit. And now they consider themselves to be a philanthropic organization whose aim is to help members lead a socially oriented and virtuous life. Very nice men. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But of course, it's still fraternal. Uh, And I wrote the cheesiest thing ever. I wrote, Alfalfa would be proud. Uh, (laughs) But there are some areas and universalfreemasonry.org cites it as a, quote, a fraternity including men and women of every race, nation, and religion. So there are some out there that allow anybody who wants to join in. And some still are exclusively men, but any religion, any race is still welcome. And they're not considered a secret society. That's like one of the myths surrounding them. But you do have to have sponsorship from a member or you have to petition to join and have money. You have to pay them. (laughs) Yeah, that was my next question. Is it like the Detroit Athletic Club or like some fancy organization? Yeah, I think each one is specific in how much their dues are and how much like there is a separate like entry fee and then there's like, I believe monthly dues and it's going to vary from lodge to lodge. So it's really hard. And I don't think you really get that number until you're kind of getting into it. <laughs> How we'll many Cutco knives do I have to sell? It's basically. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. It's a Cutco uh, triangle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the early years of Freemasonry around the 17th and 18th centuries, Masonic lodges performed their actual temples in private homes or rooms or public taverns where they would rent out a space. And eventually they set up more permanent facilities, though, that they could devote to their practices. So they still they followed and still follow the structure of medieval guilds by having three grades or what they called degrees. And these are apprentice and either journeyman or fellow. I think they're called fellow more often now and master mason. There's some areas where there's extra degrees, too. I'm not going to go too far into that because it gets, again, a little dense going into that stuff too much. At each level, the candidate joining learns the meanings of the symbols, and they are shown a secret handshake or several secret handshakes, signs, and words to show other members members only for that degree. I hope that at least one order uses like the parent trap handshake. (laughs) (laughs) I bet that's the highest degree. Yeah, it should be. 
Yeah. yeah. They have like little pins of Haley Mills they wear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How great. And the ways that they learn other materials to go through these degrees is through allegorical morality plays and lectures, which is why you'll see a lot of stages in lodges. It's a lot of like verse. I believe that there's a lot of, and then I'm going off the top of my head right now. I believe there's a lot of um, having to do some like rote kind of learning of those verses and such as well. The Masonic Lodge is, like I said, the organizational unit itself and not necessarily the structure. Most of them meet regularly. They go over business, things like minutes, new membership, appointing officers, correspondences, bills, et cetera, et cetera. And they often meet to perform a ceremony that grants a Masonic, one of these Masonic degrees to a member or receive a lecture, you know, to go for that. Afterwards, there may be a formal dinner involving a toasting and a song. And I don't remember where I put this, but I want to say right now, during their actual like lodge meetings, particularly when they're doing this degree work, there's actually a man who will stand outside the door with a sword so (laughs) nobody else can get in. Want a lodge in my house immediately. Like, how great is that? Right. Mm-hmm. It's usually like a more senior member, so that they're not accidentally overhearing something they haven't actually heard before. So they want like a higher degree member, so that they're not cheating, basically. <laughs> oh, it's called a Tyler. The guy standing outside is a Tyler. Okay. And candidates are progressively initiated first into the degree of entered apprentice. They may be passed on to fellow craft and then raised to master mason. And uh, a general lodge meeting may look something like this. An altar will be in the room. I think usually it's in the middle of the room, but I couldn't find anything to say that's always where it is. So I don't want to get it wrong. And it always holds a book of divine testament. Generally speaking, this is a Bible, but members are welcome to bring other pieces of scripture from their religion. But it should be noted that lodges will not allow you to discuss religion or politics Hmm. as they are not a religious organization, but a lot of the teachings do come from the Bible. I remember them talking about that in the tour that basically to be a Mason, you don't really have to believe you have to believe in some kind of higher power, but Mm -hmm. not like any particular one. Yeah. The way they talk about it is they talk about basically like Supreme being, uh, they do use Hmm. the word God, I believe in some of the practices from what I recall, but it's not necessarily it's not necessary that you believe in God. You can call God whatever you want. I'm gonna bring my share seventy fifth or like people's special edition share magazine and be like, Can I be a Mason? Share's my deity, here's my text. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, it. Yeah, share would be my deity if I was gonna be a high a Freemason. Hey, she believes in life after love. That should count Absolutely. for something. That should. <laughs> uh so yeah, basically the rules are believe in one supreme being and be male. And (laughs) the goal, again, is to, like, engage and enlighten the mind and aid in the advancement of all mankind. So back to the ceremony, though, the master's chair sits against the east wall where the sun comes from because of enlightenment. And to his left are seats for the senior deacon and lodge secretary. Above them is a lit medallion with the G in the center to signify God, the great architect and geometry as well. Uh, It also has the... um, t-square in the forgot to write it down the other the other geometry maybe i think it's a protractor but i think there's a different name for it but it's got the it math things it's got math things in it for building (laughs) uh got it (laughs) i always wonder what the g stood for i'm glad i know it's either god or geometry 
Mm-hmm. I know. I like the twofer aspect of that a lot. Uh, off to the side is the junior warden's chair by the south wall. And a lot of globes are generally used in these spaces as well. And they kind of represent some some different things. I think it might vary from lodge to lodge. But again, I went to a lot of different like lodges websites. So... <laughs> Uh, another ceremony practice is the annual installation of the master of the lodge and his appointed or elected officers. In some lodges, an installed master is a separate rank with its own secrets, maybe some handshakes and attributes. And after a full year in the chair, the master invests in his elected successor and becomes a past master with privileges in the lodge and the Grand Lodge. And in other places, they just don't do that. They just do their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um most of them, too, actually have social functions in which non-Masonic guests are invited as well. Frequently, this happens when there's some sort of discussion about philanthropy philanthropy, or trying to do an, an actual fundraiser and just showing where the money from dues and rentals and such will go. Mm-hmm. And it's a square and compass because I did write it down. It's right here. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's other groups, though, that meet besides... at the Masonic Lodge in Detroit, it's what, and I'm sure Alex will get to it, it's the biggest Masonic Lodge there is. And there's a lot of different groups that meet there because of that as well. I'm not going to go too far into that. But if, for example, there is still a group of Knights Templar that meet in one of the rooms, as well as the 33 degree Scottish Rite, which <laughs> reading this stuff gets very intense. <laughs> Uh Uh, Because there's like a lot of history to all of these groups. There's a lot of crossover. There's also a lot of myth and things like that as well. So we're just going to leave it as there are groups. They're kind of updated groups, especially for Knights Templar. They're not necessarily like historically speaking Knights Templar, but they're similar to Masons, but different. They're a separate kind of thing. They have their own separate space there. A little history and broad about Masonic temples in general the first one was built in 1765 in Marseille, France, and it was followed by many others. Following this, others were built around Europe, United States, and they thus led to integrating symbolic formation into the temple itself for practices. So if you walk around any of them, you will see symbols everywhere. They are carved into the floors. They are carved into any kind of wall space, any kind of railing space. There is symbols galore. I know at the the Masonic here, you could spend months probably going through and just looking at the symbols there. And also, it was very interesting, especially building in the United States, they could actually, when they were building, take advantage of changing tax laws that allowed fraternal and benevolent societies to own property and lease space without being taxed as commercial landlords. Huh. Mm-hmm. And this actually helped them too. And sometimes smaller lodges would actually combine forces to build a bigger space because they could add that commercial space then too and rent it out to help keep up keep the building so they could rent make money not rely solely on dues and actually be able to fund the space and this is when they started becoming masonic temples masonic halls or masonic lodges uh the 1920s was pretty much the height of freemasonry and by 1930 over 12% of adult males in the united states were a member wow i know uh it's lot. shocking i i mean 1930 we're you know talking 90 years ago but 
that is. I mean, I guess large... it was the thirties. What else was there to do? You know, farm. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and then, um, of course, the Great Depression hit, though. Yeah. And so they kind of switched their focus from building all of the buildings to actually helping those less fortunate, those in need, and eventually supported World War II efforts. Huh. Yeah. There was a small resurgence in the 1950s, but then, of course, came the 60s and 70s with the uh, anti-establishment attitudes. And numbers kind of been sliding down since because people don't want that anymore for the most part. So some of the halls have been converted. Um, some of them have managed to stay open, again, renting out spaces for other use and things like that. Uh, and we're actually going to go a little bit now into conspiracy theories. Ooh. There's a lot of them when it comes to the Freemasons. Uh, I can't <laughs> so imagine many. why. <laughs> I know. An ancient organization? I... What? So so bizarre. Uh I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'm going to cover quite a few. I've only got some where I did like some big bulks of research because I was like, I what is this? Uh, so there is, of course, the New World Order theory. And basically just that they're planning to take over governments and control the world. I don't really have a ton on that, but, you know, it's a fun one. So we had to put that in there. Uh, there's also some people think that they're and this is all alleged obviously, uh, ties to the occult. And this actually begins with something called the, and I might say this name wrong, Taxel hoax, Taxel hoax. And this is the one I did do a lot of research on. So this was in the 1890s and it was led by Leo Taxel. His pen name was Marie Joseph Gabriel Antoine Jogan Pages. Real simple pen name. (laughs) Real simple pen name. And he was a writer who had gotten into a little bit of trouble with an earlier work called The Secret Love of Pope Pius IX. Ooh, sounds saucy. Mm-hmm. As a result of it, he underwent a very public conversion to Roman Catholicism. And he announced he was repairing damages he had made to the true faith. So I'm not sure that he actually uh, took to the conversion super well, because I don't think he did anything wholeheartedly, it sounds like. Because after his conversion, he produced a four-volume history of Freemasonry. And this included fictitious eyewitness accounts of their practices of Satanism. Oh, God. So his follow-up was co-writing something called The Devil in the 19th Century, in which he introduced the character Diana Vohan. The book contained tales of her encounters with demons, one of whom wrote prophecies on her back with its tail. And of course, another one was in the shape of a crocodile who played the piano. Um, yep. <laughs> it's like Walt Disney nightmares. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you see, Diana was involved in satanic Freemasonry, but was redeemed after one day uh, professing admiration for Joan of Arc. The mention of Joan of Arc caused the demons to flee. So okay. that's a little tidbit for you. If anybody's got demons out there, just talk about your love for Joan of Arc. Taxil went to on to write about what he called the Palladists or Palladists, and they were members of an alleged um, theistic Satanist cult within Freemasonry at it, in its highest orders. This is where men would worship Lucifer and interact with demons, of course. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And in 1891, Taxil, along with another man named Aldolf Rikus, 
claimed to have discovered an actual Palladian society. In the 1892 book called The Devil in the 19th Century by Dr. Batel, this one's a hard one, it's French. But you see, Dr. Batel was actually just taxil again. So, you know, uh, this love the pen name. I know. This book told how the Paladists were Satanists based in Charleston, South Carolina, specifically. Very specific. Mm -hmm. Another author named Arthur Edward Waite debunked the existence of the group in a book called Devil Worship in France or the Question of Lucifer. It's a mouthful of a title in 1896. And he pointed out that Dr. Batale, who had first written of the Paladists, asserted that women would be initiated as companions of Penelope he also claimed that the society had two orders, Adelph and Companion of Ulysses. So like, just, I don't know, like women were being allowed and I think that was bad for some reason. But the society was broken up by French law enforcement just a few years after being founded. Then Diana Vaughn, remember her? She had that, you know, fancy writing on her back from the demon. Mm-hmm. She published a book called Confessions of an ex Paladist in 1895. Two years later, though, April 19th, Taxil called a press conference at which he said he would introduce Diana Vaughn, Vohan. Then to he the turned press. around and put a wig on. <laughs> Pretty much. Instead yeah. of that, he announced that all of his theories about Freemasons were fictitious. Oh, my gosh. Thanked the Catholic clergy for assisting in giving publicity to all of his claims. His confession was printed. And I've got a little it's a it's long, but it's a quote from him. And it's just beautiful. He goes on to say, The public made me what I am, the arch liar of the period. For when I first commenced to write against the Masons, my object was amusement pure and simple. The crimes I laid at their door were so grotesque, so impossible, so widely exaggerated. I thought everybody would see the joke and give me credit for originating a new line of humor. But my readers wouldn't have it so. They accepted my fables as gospel truth. And the more I lied for the purpose of showing that I lied, the more convinced became they that I was a paragon of veracity. Then it dawned upon me that there was lots of money in being a Munchausen of the right kind. And for 12 years, I gave it to them hot and strong, but never too hot. When indicting such slush as the story of the devil snake who wrote prophecies on Diana's back with the end of his tail, I sometimes say to myself, hold on, you are going too far. But I didn't. My readers even took kindly to the yarn of the devil who, in order to marry a mason, transformed himself into a crocodile and, despite the masquerade, played the piano wonderfully well. (laughs) Ah, the jolly evenings I spent with my fellow authors hatching out new plots, new unheard of perversions of truth and logic, each trying to outdo the other in organized mystification. I thought I would kill myself laughing at some of the things proposed. There is no limit to human stupidity. He got that last part right. I know. I know. Um, Yeah. So that is the Taxel hoax theory that happened with the Masons. I was like, history is so strange Uh, because you can't make that up. I feel like he made it up. He made it all up. But it's like P.T. Barnum or something. Right. Yeah. L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. He was the L. Ron Hubbard of his time. I, I, I do believe. So a couple other ones, too, and most of them are kind of short. This one's a little longer, but Illuminati. There's been a lot of thoughts of ties to Illuminati. Uh, there's 
thoughts that, and again, this is all alleged conspiracy, that they overlap or are controlled by the Illuminati, especially those with higher degrees. It's surmised by these conspiracy theorists that Illuminati Freemasons secretly control many major aspects of society and governments. Some of these theories include Knights Templar and also Jewish groups all working together in a plan for universal control of society. This type of theory was described as early as 1792 by several authors in France and Scotland. So it's been around for a second. Uh, which I'm like, what you waiting for? If you're going to take over, what you waiting for? Because, right, yeah. Um, there's others who thought that there was ties to communism. The Spanish dictator Francisco Franco associated his opposition with both the Freemasons and the communists, uh, or as he put it, the quote: "The whole secret of the campaigns unleashed against Spain can be explained in two words: masonry and communism." <laughs> but he wasn't the last. Others have thought it too. But I think it's faded a little bit, we'll say. There's some who theorize that the Freemasons are behind income taxes in the U.S. I mean, (laughs) okay. Yeah. Uh, Others think they're related to other secret societies, such as the Bohemian Groove, the Skull and Bones, uh, Rhodes Scholars, or other surmise that they, yeah. I know, (laughs) I was like, really? Uh, Or the KKK and the Orange Order. And I'm like, all these groups are very different. Yeah. Of course, there's going to be some devil worship theories. Yeah. Thrown in there. Uh, a lot of people, not a lot of people. I don't know why I said a lot of people. Some people out there think that Freemasons intertwine their symbols in numerology into corporate logos to kind of have a little oh, control. Of course. Mm-hmm. There's some people, too, that are like, the sidewalks at my campus spell out this. I'm like, no, they didn't plan mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It's just to get from here to there. Yep. It's it, Yep. Uh, the U.S. or something that the U.S. was founded by Freemasons who wove, the, again, their symbols symbols into American society, particularly national seals. There's a whole thing with the streets of D.C., uh, architecture, and, of course, the dollar bill. Well, as I watched the documentary National Treasure, I believe this <laughs> exactly. to be true. Yeah. <laughs> the, a lot well, of Freemasons in that movie. I will say, though, it actually... In all actuality, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and James Monroe were actually all Mas- Freemasons. So the you forefathers know, good were chance. actually, yes. Yeah. Um, of course, too, they also, they fake the Apollo moon landing. Some believe that. Uh, oh, this one's real fun, too. Uh, Freemasons, or some people believe that Freemasons at NASA deceive the public to hide the fact that the Earth is flat. Oh, good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's going to be some September 11th th- theories that the attacks were astrological in nature as part of a hidden war between Masons and Islam. Okay. Interesting. I feel like they're going to tie, people will tie Masons to anything. It, it's, that's not what I'm gathering. Mm-hmm. Except there's for also jars. The- you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also the humanoid reptile whole theory that they're being you know controlled by the humanoid reptiles that control everything lizard people lizard people and just a couple fun facts i guess we'll call it uh some people believe that jack the ripper and jfk were freemasons okay there's no corroboration of any of that that i came across not to say it's out there but wanted to throw it in there I know that those were the two people jack the ripper and jfk i know i know <laughs> I'm kind of picturing them together now, like right, hanging right. out They've or now something. Been grouped in like, my mind. one arm around the other one, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> a serial killer and a philandering president, all in the same <laughs> sentence. 
Yeah. Uh, and then this is my last bit for a second, but Mount Rushmore was built by a Freemason. This is not, this is for real, by a Freemason named Gutsan Borglun, along with his son, and then hundreds of other people, obviously. <laughs> Which I was like, that tracks for some reason. That I mean, it's stonework, so it's Mason. Yeah, exactly. Masonry. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of wraps up just a brief history of the very dense, very long, because we're talking thousands of years of history for the Freemasons uh, before kind of diving into the Detroit aspect of it and uh, yes. handing it over to Alex. Yes. Yeah, so as Jess mentioned, it is the largest Masonic temple in the world, but only after 1939 because... Hmm. The Chicago one was bigger, but they demolished it. I did not know that until I researched, was started researching that, that there was, because you always hear, oh, it's mm-hmm. the biggest in the world, it's the biggest in the world, but like, it's well, only because I, the bigger one got taken out. I was going to say, I, I don't think that the tagline <laughs> being longer of, <laughs> it's the biggest one in the world because there used to be a bigger one, but it got demolished in 1939. Uh, really, fits at least anywhere. have a little asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No wonder we hate Chicago so much. Right. <laughs> so just get into like the building history of how it happened. So it actually isn't the original Masonic Temple in Detroit either. Uh, the first one was conceived in 1891. Uh, it was designed to hold the largest chapters, councils, commanderies, and the Michigan Sovereign Consistory, which I guessing are all kind of orders and groups, different clubs, if you will. Mm-hmm. And some of those involved, the lodges involve Zion, Detroit, Union, Ashlar, Oriental, Schiller, and Kilwinning. Uh, the two chapters involved are Monroe and Peninsular. And then there was also a Monroe Council. And then uh, the two commanderies were Detroit and Damascus. So they kind of were meeting with all these people from these groups, secured land funding, and had the architectural firm Mason and Rice come up with the plans and the specs. And the original temple was on Lafayette and First. It was uh, ready to be moved into in 1896. Uh, the building was designed to be suitable for the fraternity for 50 years. It oh, lasted wow. 12. Lasted 12. <laughs> because they didn't anticipate how quickly like the Masons would grow. Like you said, they kind of like mm-hmm. peaked in the 20s. And, you know, the early 1900s, they really were growing quick. And so they like... In the original building, they had to start doing things like restricting the use of the dining room service, like the assembly halls and other parts of the temple just to keep it running because they couldn't just handle the sheer amount of people. And so, like you know, they started talking about how we're going to solve this. And at first they were like, let's just try an addition. Maybe we can like make this one still work. So they ended up buying another 50 feet of land to do so and brought back George D. Mason and co. I'm not sure where Rice went. I think maybe he got the boot or something, but. George Mason was brought back and after playing around with the specs and plans for a while, kind of just like, there's no way we got to build a new one. Mm-hmm. So in 1913, they began looking for a new location for the temple. They landed on 350 feet of property on what was then known as Bag Street with two G's, B-A-G-G Street, but was later renamed Temple Street for unrelated reasons. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, it was, so it was a great location, not too far from downtown. It was close to the transportation hubs and Cass Park, which would guarantee that the front of the temple would not be obstructed by other buildings. And all, again, George D. Mason and co. were brought back to design the new temple. 
And he was able to convince them to buy uh, another 50 feet of land on top of the 350 they had secured already. So they could include a club quarters for the Moslem Temple, which is another order of the Masons. March 1920, they did some elaborate planning and figured out how to get the finances to build the temple. And they were able to secure $2.5 million, which when adjusted for inflation is like $33.5 million today. Oh my gosh. Massive fundraising effort. I don't know how they did it, but on Thanksgiving in 1920, they broke ground on the temple, which is crazy because it took them two years just to even lay the cornerstone of the building because they had to excavate so much dirt because it just goes so deep. So like on September 18th, 1922, the, the cornerstone of the building was laid using George Washington's tools. Like you mentioned, George Washington was a mason, so his tools are kind of fancy stuff for the masons i guess they use it in ceremonies when they can <laughs> it would take another four years to finish the building and the whole thing took pretty much exactly six years because the ceremony to dedicate the temple and consecrate the rooms was held on thanksgiving day 1926 uh the total cost of the building was about six million dollars which is about 85 million today uh it was added to the national register of historic places on 19 in 1980 uh, the temple was almost foreclosed in 2013 when it was discovered they owned they owed Wayne County over $150,000 in back taxes. And they were able to pay off this debt largely thanks to Jack White of the White Stripes, uh, which I think like is somewhat common knowledge at this point. It, but the reason why I just learned while researching this was he wanted to help the building in its time of need because they had helped his mother in the time of need, I guess. At one point, she was looking for work, and they gave her a job as an usher in the theater. And so he's like, they helped my mom, I'll help them. I think he gave like $142,000 of the taxes that were owed. And in response to this, uh, the Masons renamed the Scottish Rite Cathedral to the Jack White Theater. So that's kind of it for the history, but of course I have to dig into the architecture because it's me. I love the architecture (laughs) aspect of things. This building is huge, in case you did not know that already. <laughs> it's like a very technical term, huge. Um, it's 12 million cubic feet of space. And it just had to be so big to hold all the various like lodges. Like I think there was originally 47 different organi- or different chapters, lodges, groups, clubs, whatever you want to call them. And that was something that was unique about this Masonic Temple, was that they did have so many different... Uh, branches working in it Mm -hmm. the building was designed in the gothic architecture style which is a very conscious choice as most choices by the masons are they usually everything has some kind of reasoning or secret behind it but Mm -hmm. this was interesting because all the preceding temples were kind of greek or egyptian inspired so this was like the first gothic masonic temple which was they thought was fitting because, like you mentioned, the Masons were the ones building the giant cathedrals in Europe uh, back in the day, and those were mostly Gothic styles. So they're like, you know, let's pay homage to the past of this organization. And just also, uh, the architect figured this was fitting because it best expressed the traditions of Masonry, Solomon's Temple, and the Scottish Rite Cathedral in Washington. Mm-hmm. So just was the right vibe for the building. Uh, It was originally designed to be in the shape of a hammer or a gavel, with the 14-story tower being the hammer part and the adjoining hall being the handle. But this uh, plan was kind of scrapped once they 
uh, plan of the addition that I mentioned, the extra 50 feet. So it's like somewhat hammer shaped now, I guess, if you look at it, but I guess they want, we're going to do more. <laughs> Just some exterior features of the building. Above the entry of the main entrance, there are three figures. King Hiram of Tyre, King Solomon, and Hiram Abif. Did not think to look up who any of those people were, but <laughs> they represent the three grand Masonic pillars. Strength, wisdom, and beauty. Which I think it's funny that um, beauty is one of their pillars. But I mean, they're Masons, so I guess like aesthetics is part of their thing. Yeah. Also, the architect George D. Mason was a Mason himself and added himself to the exterior decor, which is well-earned. He's designed three of these buildings for them at this point. I mean, one that didn't get built, but like he did the first one and then this one. So I think it's fair to put your face on the building. Yeah. Can we also just say how fitting it was that his last name was actually Mason? Oh, yeah. Like. (laughs) Like. That's great branding. Right. Yeah. He's a Mason. His name's Mason. <laughs> so the building was divided up into 28 units grouped into three major divisions. The Ritualistic Tower, which again is that 14 story like main tower on the left, if you're looking at it from, I think, the park. Then um, the kind of long, sh- the long, shorter part of the building is like the auditorium. That's kind of more the public part of the building. And then mm-hmm. the on the other side is the 10-story tower, which is the Shrine Club. It's one of the most complicated buildings ever to be built in the U.S. Uh, the 14-story tower is 210 feet high. Uh, there's 1,037 rooms in the building, which is a lot. The roof alone is 80,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, before the Pentagon was built, the Masonic Temple had the record for most tunnels and hallways in the U.S., if not the world, Mm -hmm. but the Pentagon. I mean, it makes sense why they're a bit more secretive. (laughs) Also, another fact, if you wanted to see every room for two minutes, it would take 4.5 days and it would you would walk 30 miles in the process. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Right. Like. I'm glad I mean, there's beds hurt. in that building. I would, I would need a nap, a break, get a snack. The one, we went, on, yeah. the one we went on was like, was it like four hours or something like that? And it, like, was a, it was a long time. And we didn't. I felt we like we just scratched the surface. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. it was like we'd be, walk by like 20 doors that were closed and then duck into like one random space. Yeah. I mean, they showed us a lot of good stuff, though. oh yeah it was a great tour highly recommend so just some stats on like what went into the building there were 3.85 million bricks used for walls and partitions wow the outside of the building is faced in over a hundred thousand cubic feet of uh indiana limestone if you weighed all of the structural steel in the building it would be 16 million pounds and at the time, and I think it still holds this record, it was the greatest number of special light fixtures in any building in the country, like special, like custom designed, which I think is kind of interesting. And like the limestone was a conscious choice too, kind of again to make it feel like a castle or an old cathedral. Mm-hmm. The building itself provides home for 26 blue lodges, the consistory, uh, two commandries, five chapters, and the council. Uh, when the building, well, the building itself is Gothic architecture. There's examples of other types found throughout the building, 
Uh, like example, on the third floor in the commandery quarters, there's a parlor that's designed in the Tudor style with high oak paneling and two suits of armor. Uh, there's also a room called the Asylum, which I think is an interesting name for the room. Because it, it was kind of like a work room, is basically mm-hmm. what I made it sound like. And what's kind of interesting about this is it's a reproduction of a room from the Tower of London, where before the Crusades, knight rece- knights would receive their charge, which I think is like their money. Like they kind of like get paid in this room. Mm-hmm. And that's I, also... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say side note. I think that's the room that the Knights Templar use too. Oh, Because okay. they're kind of coming from the Knights Templar who were in the Crusades. I that think. makes sense. Yes. Yeah. This is also where the Ascension scene is, which is this weird, just like mechanical <laughs> wonder. Just like it's a custom built stage apparatus is the official term for it. Mm-hmm. It's the largest of its kind when it was built. There's two large mirrors that face each other on different angles and biblical filter, biblical figures are dragged across the floor, which then the mirrors reflect to kind of give the appearance of like Jesus ascending into heaven. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it's upright. Like you're watching like just like it happened in weird front of you, hologram but it's on the floor. Yeah, but it was just like, really, they're just dragging Jesus across the floor. So, And when we went, they told us usually on the tour we were on that we would be able to like actually like run it for a second. But I think somebody had broken Jesus's hand or something yeah. in the last tour. So we weren't allowed to <laughs> do that anymore. He will rise again, though. Yeah. Yes. They will. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of it for the asylum. On the second floor, there's a room called the chapter room that is decorated with door columns and red hangings. I think this is actually one of the craft rooms. The main lobby uh, was the decoration and design was inspired by a room from a castle in Palermo, Sicily. The bronze doors mm. of the six elevators contain symbols of the craft, capital C, the craft, which I think is just things that the Masons do. And those, again, those symbols are kind of found throughout the building. But kind or of a like, really witchy movie from the 90s. Yes. Oh, I love the craft. <laughs> I'm still bummed that it was supposed to be Nancy from the craft for Halloween one year, but it didn't work out. There's future Halloweens. Yeah. Although yeah. I watched it again recently. I'm like, I don't know if I want to be her. She's not, <laughs> she doesn't mean a nice end. And, you know, I've moved on. I, I was um someone from the Amanda show instead that year. Anyway, um, there's also on the floor a five foot diameter brass plaque. And it's meant to represent truth, strength, and charity. And so, speaking of the craft, there were seven craft lodge rooms. And they were done in different styles, including Egyptian, Doric, Ionic, which I think is the one I... Or Doric, I mentioned that one above. Ionic, which is the one where Henry Ford was a member, where he obtained the 33rd degree in the Scottish Rite. No idea what that means, but it sounds impressive. Do you know, Jess? Or you, oh. I didn't go that too far into it. It's, it's just... There's more degrees, I believe, within that system than the just yeah. like basic three degree. I'm going to assume 33, but I don't know. Um, it, he, it sounded he, more intense. Yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. 33 is a, it's just a bigger number. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope they get kilts or something because that just would be fun. But yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what the Scottish right means. The right to wear a kilt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So 
there was also a Corinthian room, which uh, there's a strange panel in the middle of this room that supposedly has a grave underneath it. It was, I guess, a part of some kind of advanced ceremonies. And it's unknown who the grave is. Um, and it's kind of just one of the secrets of the Masons. I did have the idea, what if it's Jimmy Hoffa? What if Jimmy That's Hoffa... That's amazing. Like, what, <laughs> has anyone checked this room for Jimmy Hoffa? We need to know. Also, it had been a minute since we talked about him on the podcast. We can't forget him. Yeah, that's true. Jimmy Hoffa, never forget. Can I tell you my Jimmy Hoffa aside here? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Okay, so there's the FBI office in Detroit, and Uh they have this thing called the Citizens Academy, where for, I think when you can do it in person, it's shorter, but we did it once a week for six weeks on Zoom and then in person. And one of the stories they told us is they still have the FBI in Detroit, Jimmy Hoffa's car. And it's like sitting in a lot, rusting, and they can't get rid of it, you know, as evidence until they Uh solve who killed him and what happened to him definitively. And they said, so that will sit there for eternity, basically. And I just need to know now, like, right, where is it? I want to see it. Right. Because it was part of a crime scene, so to speak, because he disappeared before you yeah. know, the car probably had evidence in it or something. But it was such a great aside; it stuck with me. That's yeah. wild. Oh so my! Now we got to find him, and we got to find his car. Now, it, did anyone check the trunk? <laughs> yeah, come on! I mean, that'd be the first place, right? Right. Someday. So, some other styles: Italian Renaissance, Byzantine, uh, Gothic, and Romanesque. Each room features a throne, an altar, and some globes. I think, Jesse mentioned the globes earlier and the mm-hmm. altar. I think the throne is a new piece of information, um, which I'm guessing probably just the head guy sits there. Mm-hmm. You'll also notice that in each lodge, there is a winding stair, which leads to the balcony behind the worshipful master. Sorry, the worshipful master's chair, and that the steps are grouped in flights of three, five, and seven. Uh, as these are the first three odd prime numbers and represent the first three degrees of masonry. The first are the five classical orders of architecture, Tuscan, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, and Roman. And the several, the seven liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. So even just things like the number of stairs the masons just thought of and designed, which like, no wonder this was such a complicated building and also just... <laughs> Like, took so long. Like, I mean, I guess six years isn't crazy for a building to be built, but like, just the amount of like detail and just little mm-hmm. things here and there that went into this building is amazing. Uh, on the third floor mezzanine, there's something called the drill hall, which is um, a 17,500 square foot of floor space and not just any kind of fo- floor, a floating floor which is like one of only three in the country. And it just means that the whole floor was laid on top of felt cushions. And this was kind of done to make the marchers that would drill in the hall kind of not ruin their ankles, I guess, because <laughs> of all the marching they had to do. Uh, and it's now home of the Detroit Roller Derby that hold their practices and matches, games. I don't really know what you call a derby. I think it's a match. I think it's a derby. Isn't is it a derby? derby the we're not a sports podcast. We've we've addressed this many times. Yeah. Detroit Derby Girls will be on a different podcast. Yes. Yeah. Detroit Derby Girls, if you're listening, please let us know. And also let us know when you're playing, because I would love to come see that. Yeah. I've always, I've always wanted to go see Derby Live. So 
slide into the DMs, please. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so they had the main theater, which uh, is one of the largest, audit- largest auditoriums in the nation. Uh, it was originally had a capacity of around 5,000 seats, but 600 of them kind of like either were like weren't great seats or just like were blocked by a pillar or something. So like, I think it's actually closer to like 4,400, but it's used like the, the temple or the Masons would use it for shrine ceremonials and concerts put on by members of the Masons, which I could only imagine what kind of music was coming out of the Masons. (laughs) But when not used by the Masons, it's a great venue for live entertainment. Everything from like opera to BB King to Jimi Hendrix, like they've all played the Masonic. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a show there, either of you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I think yeah. I saw a play there even. Oh wow! Oh, that makes sense. And yeah. the TEDx TEDx was there one year and it was really good. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, I saw. What did I see? I saw Tignataro, but that was the smaller theater. Yeah, that was. Really fun. Oh man. And then I, I know I've been in the bigger theater. I feel like I think I saw the national play in the bigger theater. And I feel like there's something else, but I can't remember because my brain has turned to mush in the past 365 days. Yeah. Um but I mean it's a gorgeous I've been in the big theater a lot. If they haven't already, which I'm sure they have, they need to do Phantom of the Opera there because I feel like it'd be a great oh, venue come on. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, like they could do a really fun version of that there where you actually like I don't know I feel like they have all the facilities to like you want the oh, creepy yeah. like boat tour go on to the basement <laughs> like you know that'd be kind a, of a, a intermission you get to ride in one of the boats or something yeah <laughs> amazing so also the stage is the second largest in the U.S. at a hundred feet a hundred feet wide and fifty five wow. feet deep so just a massive stage. And there are 23 furnished dressing rooms spread across three levels. Wow. That's a lot of dressing rooms. Yeah. Yeah. Just like they thought of everything except for an organ. They planned for an organ, but they never installed one. So there's a spot for one. It just never happened. Wow. There's two ballrooms, the fountain ballroom and the crystal ballroom. The fountain ballroom being the larger of the two and has a capacity of about 1,800. And it's a large circular room, which, of course, had a tiled fountain in it. Uh, then like half a floor mm-hmm. below that is the crystal ballroom, which was designed in the Italian style and contains two large crystal. I had never seen this word before. Electroliers, which I'm guessing just means electric chandelier. Yeah. And that has a capacity. One said like 900 and another one said Room for 750 couples dancing, which is a very different number. <laughs> and I also read that like they rushed to get the ballrooms opened first so they could use it for fundraising to fund the rest of the building. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, also, in addition to these uh, ballrooms, there's five adjoining dinner rooms. Also, same with the theater question. Have either of you been to an event in the ballrooms? Have you ever been to like, a private event there? Never a private one. Okay. Mm-mm. Like, I know people get married there, and I think that'd be a really fun mm-hmm. venue for that. Probably expensive, though. Probably oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're getting married there, though, and you want to invite us, uh, please Again, do. slide to the DMs. Yeah, yeah, slide to my DMs on that <laughs> yeah. one for sure. Yeah. I make a great plus one to a wedding. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. A very fun plus one. <laughs> So on the ballroom mezzanine, there is a five-chair barbershop and a soda fountain that serves a light lunch. 
Uh, I'm not sure if either of them are still using because I know that I read that there was mm-hmm. also a three chair barbershop that's no longer being used. But there's the kitchen is massive. I know we toured that. It's just huge. They Dang. have their own pastry shop, which I think is kind of fun. They also have two 40 ton ice machines. Which provides refrigeration and, of course, ice to the building. Wow. Mm-hmm. But 40 tons. It's amazing. Right. So that's kind of like we that's like the 14 story tower and then like the public part of the building. Now to talk about the 10 story unit at the east end of the building, which mm-hmm. was originally the Muslim temple. But there was a power plant in the building. The building had its own power plant capable of providing power, light and heat for a community of 50,000. Oh my gosh. They don't use it anymore. I think they just use city power, but like at, they there's at least a power plant that was there at some point that could do mm-hmm. that. Uh the plumbing is an interesting story because it's technically below the level of the city system. So I remember this from the tour. They had like these two like industrial, basically like water cannon super soaker things that just launched the wastewater like up into the city system. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> Just Imagine like, if that failed. Like what oh happened with that freak? Yeah. Oh Reek, god, it would literally. Be oh my oh god, yeah. It would be awful. Uh-huh. So I'm get they keep those in working order. Waste that is the super one soakers. Thing. What? <laughs> I do have waste throwing super soakers is now yeah, forever etched mm-hmm. on my brain. Shit super soakers. There we go. <laughs> Just some other rooms I couldn't find a ton of information on, but just they're there. They got some clue rooms. They have the library, the lounge, the billiard room. <laughs> Why you know. are they not having clue-themed parties? That's amazing. I would that would be oh, my gosh. Party there. Mrs. Uh, White, Peacock, come on. Uh-huh. Right. They also have a card room, a gymnasium, which is no longer in use. They also have an indoor swimming pool that was like, they had like a whole athletic complex there mm-hmm. at some point, but obviously I don't think any of it's open except for the drill hall for the Derby girls. I, I believe too, most of it never got finished. Yeah. That pool, the pool was never finished. There was a second pool that like never even got started. Yeah. But which the, makes but sense. I think, if you're not going to finish one, why start mm-hmm. the other? But yeah, I think most of the recreational area kind of. They ran out of money. Yeah. Can't they get like a loan from Dan Gilbert to finish the pool? Seriously, it's a big, it was a big pool too. I mean, like the room is really creepy. Like you walk in there and you're like, how many you got people to have see died it? in That's this on room? the tour? It was on yeah. the, that tour. I've been on both no, tours. I need to take this have, tour. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, that, it was cool. That and there was a, a unused stage. Yeah. That they wow. take you on that tour. Yeah. And you see the basement and you see the um, elevator room, like the hydraulic. Is it hydraulic? I don't know what it is. No, it's all electric. Electric. Um, You see the electrics for the elevators. Which is crazy because a lot of it is like the original. Like, it's just like, it looks like like the size of a modern like server rack, but it's all just like switches that just like, Mm -hmm. you actually see sparks flying. Wow. Like things whirling Mm -hmm. and stuff of like the elevators. It was like a really state of the art system at the time. Cause it was like, bef- it was like kind of around the time when elevators still had like an operator in them to kind of like, and so it was like one of the first automatic elevators. I remember them saying of, of its mm-hmm. kind. Uh, it's amazing. They still have it working. Cause again, it's just like sparks flying and like looks like a Rube Goldberg machine, you know? Wow. <laughs> 
15 bowling alleys. They had 15 bowling alleys, none no longer in use. Wasted space. Right. Uh, Let the are, people bowl. Right. Yeah, bowling was huge in Detroit around that time. There were whole floors of buildings. I oh, thought wow. about doing a book about bowling. Don't ask me why. It's something wrong with <laughs> Love me. Love that. But there were whole floors of buildings that had bowling alleys all through them. And like Henry Ford's house has a bowling alley in the bottom of it. Even like bowling was mm-hmm. so big as a, a activity at these for men and families back in the day. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. Yeah. I, I would read a bowling book. I'm just going to throw that I out there. I would too, yeah. <laughs> bowling in Michigan, we have like a huge history, so who knew? Yeah, I I didn't, and now I'm interested. So. <laughs> Another one you guys could do. Yes. There's this great female bowler who's like super cool too, so I'll have to send you what I remember about her. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, we love talking about ladies on the show because we do not talk about them enough in history. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There are also 80 guest rooms, which are available only to nobles of the Mystic Shrine and members of the Blue Lodge. So unfortunately, if you're coming to Detroit, you cannot stay there unless you are one of those people. Uh, There's a shoe shine parlor, and there was at one point a rooftop garden. I don't think it's there anymore. Like Jess mentioned, there was a third auditorium theater planned. Uh, It was located on the seventh floor of the building. And again... Uh, due to lack of funds, it was never finished. And it's unfortunate it wasn't finished because it would have been another record for the building as being the only building to have three theaters under one roof. Also, you can see what it kind of looks like now because Eminem used it in his Walk on Water music video. I think they also mentioned that Beyonce did something there, but I can't remember what. And I could be making it up, but I remember her name coming up in that tour mm-hmm. at least once. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like I royalty. can't remember either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it for the building that I have. There's obviously so much more that I couldn't cover because, again, 1,037 rooms. Yeah. And again, I highly recommend a tour because it's just spectacular. Yeah, it's it was a lot of fun. And there's two of them. There's like a light, a tour light, we'll say. And that one's fun, mm-hmm. too. But we did like the deep dive. And it is, you go into spaces that, like, people don't regularly go in unless they're part of the lodges. So that was kind of cool. But other ways to get into the spaces is to attend events there. Yeah. One of my favorite events that I've attended there, well, there's a couple, but is, uh, as Alex mentioned, Nain Rouge, the Nain Rouge parade, Parade every year, usually with the exception of the past few. Uh, usually stops in front of the Masonic at the end of the parade route. And then there's usually some sort of party inside, which is a lot of fun. And we covered the name Rouge in an episode that I forgot to write the number down for. Uh, And my other favorite one is Theater Bazaar, which we're going to do a little Theater Bazaar light, I'm going to call this right now. And Theater Bazaar, if you haven't heard of it, it is like nothing else on earth it is like the biggest massacre the greatest masquerade on earth is how they put it and it's on eight of the 16 floors in the the main tower so Uh it takes up half of that space it was first started in 1999 by john dunavant after he was ejected from the russell industrial center actually where he had held a whole halloween party every year 
And he and Kent Pariah, who owned many properties near the state fairgrounds, laid the groundwork. And it was originally just on one of the lots over in that area by the state fairgrounds. In 2010, though, the city shut down the grounds based on zoning violations. The last minute, 2,500 attendees and the affair itself moved into the Fillmore for the year. And by 2011, the Kresge Foundation actually granted John as one of its visual arts fellows. Oh, wow. And the party moved into the Masonic. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait for them to do it again because I have to go. It's yeah, I've been uh, three years. I love it every time. It's it's just such a pleasure and you can't replace that experience with another whatsoever. It's it's definitely its own thing. Uh, and they Detroit actually have exclusive. A, it's very exclusive. And actually, if you're really interested in the building, too, they actually have kind of a pre bizarre preview gala the Friday night before the actual things. And that's less people allowed in. And you get I believe you get like dinner and drinks included with it. It's a, a pricier ticket. But I've always wanted to go to that. So that's on my, my bucket list now. But it's basically collectively the gala and the actual bazaar itself. It's an immersive art installation and Halloween party. So you're not allowed in without a costume, which is one of my favorite things. Um, and then when you walk in, there's like all sorts of acts. It's kind of got like a quote unquote like freak show kind of vibe sort of to it. But you're going to see like fire eaters. You're going to see burlesque fire dancers, suspension artists, uh, which sometimes that one I can't watch. <laughs> it's, the, it's the hooks for me. And then, of course, there is also Zombo, who is basically kind of like the leader of the festivities. Hail Zombo. Hail Zombo. Mm-hmm. Hail Zombo. <laughs> and then now... Now that we've kind of go over, gone over, again, Theater Bazaar Light and a little bit of the festivities there, now we're going to go into the ooky spookies that could be there. Yes. We love we an need, ooky spooky. Mm-hmm. Why not end on some ooky spookies? So a lot of websites will say that it is haunted by the ghost of George Mason. Security guards have claimed to see his apparition going up the stairs to the roof, and many believe that is due to him having jumped off the roof after going bankrupt during construction and being left by his wife. Uh, And guests have seen him as well, too. However, those websites didn't do the research for long enough because he actually died in bed at the age of 92 in 1948. (laughs) So, I mean, he could still be haunting the building. Yeah, just not for those reasons. Exactly. So it might still be him, but just, yep. Maybe he just likes a rooftop view. It It right. is beautiful from the roof. It is. We actually have a picture mm-hmm. of the two of us on the roof. We do. Aww, we that's do. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also been reported to have many cold spots by many people and doors that will close suddenly, of course. And many have seen shadows moving throughout the building. There wow. is one particularly particular door on the roof that's said to swing open just moments after it's locked. Uh, Patrolmen have seen this a few times, I believe. And many report feeling watched while they are in the building. So kind of just like heaviness. And I can't find anything specific about that. But a video did actually also mention objects moving on their own. I didn't find any accounts of that necessarily other than a video mentioning it, but it might be a thing there. And some have reported other male apparitions and some have heard disembodied voices and whispers throughout the building. It's gotta be haunted. <laughs> that big old spooky building. If there's building. a body, 
Yeah, there's some right. other body under the yeah. floor, and we don't know mm-hmm. who it is. Yeah. We got to have a seance and, like, you know, figure out who he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a general manager, Steve Genther, and he said he thinks stories of a ghost there are probably an urban legend. He doesn't really believe it. But he does remember one time he was there late and the only person in the building and an elevator took off for no reason. But this is the only thing he's seen in his 33 years there. And, you know, that could also be electrical. Yeah. Um, I did watch a couple videos on YouTube. There is one of, have either of you heard of SLS technology for ghost hunters? No, it's, it's a It's this video and it shows kind of, it shows depths in video. But basically, when there's a figure there that you can't see, so an apparition, it will show a stick figure. Oh, boy. And oh, yeah. Yeah. We saw some so of that on the Eloise tour. Yes. Yes. I think, and, right? And yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a video that d- does show an SLS session. And I'll, I'll share it out with y'all, too. Actually, I can put it in the chat because we have that here. If anybody wants to, you know, click on it just to see, you can see the at least like the video scroll ahead a few minutes. Cause you know, the beginning is boring setup, but there is a woman sitting in a chair and she has a stick figure to her left. And she states, she feels something on each side of her. And when she says that a second one shows up on her right, right. As she says it, there's a later Ew. clip where, yeah, she asks it to touch her hand and it, a stick figure shows up. And then um, they ask one to sit in her lap. And all of a sudden it shows up in her lap. No. That's ooky spooky. Uh-huh. Seriously, I'm going to have a hard time mm-hmm. going to any meal or anything <laughs> at the Masonic where you're sitting now. <laughs> that video is wild to watch. I love those stick figures so much. We'll have to post it on our Facebook so our listeners can see it too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, and then there's a couple other, I think it's the same video. There's an AVP, which I've never heard of, which is an audio voice phenomenon. They hear a disembodied voice. And then there's an EVP where a man says, if there's somebody here and a female voice whispers, who's talking? It's a little creepy. Yeah. And then from a website called hauntedplaces.org, I have two stories left in the comments by people to kind of round it out. So this one is from Sonia Mastic from October 2014. And she says, quote, I have worked shows at venues all over the country for several years, and this is one of the creepiest places I've ever been. Firstly, it just feels heavy and haunted. Secondly, if you spend any significant amount of time in there, you will begin to see strange movements out of the corner of your eyes and hear things when you are the only one in the room. Many of the rooms have no power to them, but you have to navigate through them to get backstage. It is a terrifying place to be, even in broad daylight. And then this one is a little more specific. And this is from actually January of 2020 from uh, Hannah. And it is, quote, I worked for the Masonic Catering, and we worked all kinds of parties from gorgeous weddings to the Masons' meetings, which were very often uncomfortable to work. I can bet. Yeah. Me and my friend took the elevator to go downstairs. We were carrying heavy trays of glasses, and the elevator went up instead of down, but the doors opened to a really creepy dark room with old creepy paintings and fancy old-fashioned couches. And we kept trying to press the button to go back down, and the elevator's doors wouldn't close for a good two minutes. Then the doors shut quick, and it took us to the floor we wanted to go originally to. I know it's probably nothing, but for me and my friends, would always go off and look around, and it was seriously the creepiest place I've been. Always felt a presence when alone. 
A couple of us were exploring one time and we were going up the steps and one of my friends was behind me. Another in front of the one behind me felt something physically touch her leg from behind and said she thought one of our friends was behind her the entire time. So she felt a presence and was hearing the steps, which was the last time we explored. That's spooky spooky too. Mm -hmm. Is it weird? It kind of makes me want it like, I'm like just envisioning like what if I just like was in the Masonic at night, just like either alone or just with a few friends and like that'd be cool but so scary. Mm-hmm. Uh I I think I would do I think I, if I had the opportunity, I think I would do it for sure. Oh, but I would be terrified. <laughs> yeah. I'd be so scared, but uh, you'd have to do it. Yeah. Uh, if there's anybody out there who has any haunted Masonic Temple stories, please let us know. I love firsthand yeah. accounts. I live for those kind of stories. Yes. But that pretty much that wraps up the Masonic Temple. Uh, do you want to do sources real quick before I forget? Oh, yeah, that's important. So my sources were historicdetroit.org, detroithistorical.org, the Masonic Temple website, my own notes for the tour we took, and of course, Wikipedia. Um, mine are all over the place. Uh, mine is universalfreemasonry.org, Wikipedia, MasonicLodgeofEducation.com, MichiganHauntedHouses.com, HauntedRooms.com, uh, Mishpix.wordpress.com, an article called Michigan's Most Haunted Detroit Masonic Temple, a free press story on Freep.com called Paranormal Investigators Look for Answers in Spooky Metro Detroit Sites by Alicia Anderson, and GhostQuest.net, HauntedPlaces.org, TheaterBazaar.com, Nailhead.com, and the masonic.com lots of solid sources <laughs> i love that you include the sources too that's wonderful we want to you know we we gotta yeah it's important i mean we've forgotten a couple times for sure but we try our best to make sure because it's a yeah they we there's a lot of work out the there sources. yeah yeah we need them yeah yeah so, so. Oh, we ahead. do have i was gonna say Sorry to put you on the spot. You can say no to this because we can cut it because I have those powers. Uh, would you like to give us a two truths and a lie about you? Oh, I could do that. I got to think of something, <laughs> though. Hold on. Hold oh, on. yeah. Oh, Take your time. Hard. Yeah. I wish I had something like fascinating that I could even share. I am the most boring suburban non-Karen Karen. <laughs> I got to think of something here. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. It could even be saying, things you've researched. Yeah. Okay, okay, products, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, two truths and a lie. I've had my picture taken with George W. Bush, Lyle Lovett, or Eminem. Who is the truth and who is the lie? Okay. Oh, my gosh. These are seriously my only celebrity... (laughs) <laughs> encounters in real life so this is Those somewhat are pretty big names though yeah okay i i do have a guess because i have to because <laughs> i is think eminem is true based on how much michigan work you've done see and that's why i'm gonna guess eminem is the lie because okay. i do think it's true i'm gonna so say I'm gonna, go I'm gonna say george w bush is my that's my guess and the lie is eminem I wish. Uh, I honestly think Eminem is so incredibly talented that I would love to meet him. So yeah. I've, I've had zero encounters with him other than I did visit that garage 
that he has uh, in the movie. And it is ridiculous. It's so worth (laughs) either sneaking in or paying to park there just to see the movie theater thing that you park under. But George W. Bush was on Mackinac Island when I was an intern for the Mackinac Island newspaper. So I got to meet him. And then Lyle Lovett was in town. And there was a whole Twitter thing between me, him, and a bunch of other people. And I got to go backstage and meet him. Wow, oh, so cool. He is like one of my idols. I adore him. I adore his music, everything about him. So that was brilliant. So I have a little selfie with Lyle Lovett on oh, all my so social fun. media. I will never change it. It's like <laughs> the know. highlight yeah. of my life. <laughs> uh, now we just have to get you that picture with Eminem. So yeah. if anybody oh, yeah, has... seriously. The if connection anyone knows out there. Eminem can make yeah. it happen, slide to the DM. I, I did meet yeah. Jack White once, once oh, no, in my life, cool. too. This is my Jack White story is he and his daughter were playing on a playground, and I was there with my kids, and my kids started bugging his kid. And I was like, Don't worry, you know, we'll 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 leave you alone. And he's like, Whatever, you know, he was he was really polite and super nice. So he was on vacation with his family and just wanted to Aww. be low-key. Yeah. But he was dressed to the nines like he looked like a rock star and he's so pale too you know i was like i've never met anybody more fair-skinned than myself but jack white so <laughs> i guess white stripes moment. is a fitting name yeah, yeah completely <laughs> wow oh uh, that's that was good yeah thank, thank you, you for doing that on the fly uh <laughs> oh that was great i'm so happy i could think of something i feel like i've had the complete detroit strange experience now i got yes. to do the two truths and a lie even Yes. And we're so happy we could have you on. This has truly been a great experience. This has been wonderful. It's amazing to participate in something that I do truly admire. And I think you guys do such a great job. And I swear from now on, I am going to like talk back to the podcast as it's going because this has been so surreal and awesome to actually get to participate. So I am delighted beyond belief. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Is there um, is there anything that you want anybody to know, any projects you're working on or how to contact you, follow you? Yeah, boy, if there is anybody who wants to reach out in any way, shape or form, I'm pondering one other small project, but I'm always looking for any big project ideas. So uh-huh. if people have ideas for books or weird tales to follow up on. I mm-hmm. would love any suggestions for anything else to write. But um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on all the things. Um, most active on Twitter just because it's fun. Yeah. And uh, if anybody has any story suggestions or anything they want to see written, I'm happy to take a swing at it. Awesome. Well, I think, thank you so much again. I can't say it enough times. Right. This has been, this has been so much fun. Yeah. We'll have to we'll have to do it again at some point. I would adore yeah. it anytime you guys want. And I'm honored that you did the books. I'm honored to be mentioned. And honestly, when I am mentioned though, a couple times, it was so exciting to be done oh. uh, in such a way that is, again, respectful and so well played. You know, like, again, I can't say enough good things. And thank you for doing that. what you're doing, like helping people understand this great place that we live and learn more about it. I think it's fascinating and it's a great podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Keep up the good work and I'll be listening. I pass it along to as many people as I can find too. And I get lots of compliments on the t-shirt. So buy the merch. Yes. I'm so happy you had that shirt. I I think I have the (laughs) same one. I love the baseball tee. It is the best one. It was my favorite (laughs) for sure. So 
it had to go down in history as my favorite Detroit tea here. You heard it here first. Our merch is Karen D approved. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I I think we're just going to wrap up really quickly. And you've already done the merch portion for it for us. Um, yes. And the Patreon, you cheapskates. Yeah. Support yeah. the podcast you listen to. Yes. <laughs> No, it God bless been. anybody that that donates and and can be part of it because it really, I'm sure, the the extra cost of your time and your expertise. You guys do so much work. So find the Patreon, y'all. Thank you, thank you. And I think basically, until next time. Next time, yeah. Stay, Stay strange. strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.